Hello. Um, for those who don't know me, my name's Helen Mountfield. I'm the principal uh, at Mansfield College, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this evening's Mansfield um, public talk, uh, which this evening is a conversation with um, Baroness Hale of Richmond. So welcome. I'd like to say welcome to Mansfield, Brenda, but well, welcome to Zoom. Welcome to our Zoom room. Um, Baroness Hale is one of those people for whom she needs no introduction, really isn't a cliche. Uh, she was the first and youngest um, woman on the Law Commission. She was the first and only woman Lord of Appeal in Ordinary um, when the final Court of Appeal was the House of Lords. She was the first uh, and for many years the only woman on the Supreme Court. And she was, until she retired in January this year, the um, first uh, female uh, president of the Supreme Court. And she is also, I'm very happy to say, an honorary fellow um, of Mansfield College, which is very welcome and very suitable, um, given that we are the home to the Bonavera Institute of Human Rights um, and a fine statue of Eleanor Roosevelt, which I look forward to showing you um, one day, Verinda. And um, I'm also the second female QC to be head of house here. So I feel we have a, a fine tradition of, of, of um, women lawyers here. Mm. I'm very pleased um, that you've accepted that invitation. And Brenda and I'd really hope that the first time you would speak here would be in person but we were absolutely determined to get you here in the hundredth year of women being um, admitted as lawyers and to uh, fully matriculated members of this university as well as our 40th anniversary of women being admitted to Mansfield so thank you um, for accepting that invitation thank you for um, making time for this conversation uh, we used the title of Afwa Hirsch's children's book about you equal to everything as uh, the title of this talk and I know you are um, thinking about writing your memoirs or in the middle of writing your memoirs and I just wondered if we could start uh, with a little bit of um, background and if you could tell us a little bit about your childhood where you came from. Well I came from a small village in uh, what was then called the North Riding of Yorkshire. Um, my father was headmaster of a small independent boys boarding school so although I didn't go to a boys boarding school, I did grow up in one, or at least uh, until the age of 13. Uh, when I was 13, my father died very suddenly. Uh, and uh, so uh, my mother picked herself up, dusted off her teacher training qualifications because uh, she'd had to give up uh, teaching when she married my father in 1936. Uh, got herself a job as the head teacher of the local primary school. So we moved down the road and stayed in the same, virtually in the same uh, village. And that was wonderful because it meant that my sister and I could continue to go to the same small girls high school in the nearby town of Richmond, the real Richmond, the original Richmond, <laughs> after which all the other Richmonds are directly or indirectly named. Um, and it was uh, a very, so in many ways, a, an idyllic uh, childhood, but tinged with that great sadness in the middle of it. And I think you're one of three sisters, because as you've said, brought up in a boys' school, um, mm. state educated, which I think hardly any, if any, of the rest of your colleagues were originally on the Supreme Court, but also mm. brought up in a boys' boarding school. Um, I recall that um, Lord Sumption said in his speech about what he called, which he called home truths about judicial diversity in 2012, that racial identity and gender aren't relevant to a candidate's ability 
um, to do a job. And he said, it's in fact part of the law of discrimination that they shouldn't be treated as relevant. And our um, JCR president here, Beth Gilmore, who is a, a female lawyer, um, has asked me for your views on, on that, whether you do think that gender or I suppose family background or race or class are relevant to the way that a judge thinks. Ah, oh, uh, that's a different question from the one I thought you were going to ask me. Um, well, are they think relevant? I was going to ask you, ask them both, answer them both, please. Well, I thought, no, I may not answer the first one. Um, I thought you were going to ask me whether they were relevant to uh, how judges are appointed. Uh, well, but the, the question all, you actually asked me is whether they're relevant to how judges think. Mm. Um, and I think that's an extremely interesting question about which uh, prominent pioneering women judges have often written, because I think most of us started off with the view that, no, we're lawyers, yeah, we're judges. Uh, in most cases, a, a, as a famous American judge once put it, a wise old woman will reach the same conclusion as her wise old man, um, which is probably the case. Wisdom being assumed, of course. Um, but there are cases in which the experience of being a woman, which is necessarily different from the experience of being a man, brings an insight to the case uh, that it's not a given that the man would have. Just as I'm sure the experience of being a man brings an insight to a case that it's not a given that a woman would have. Uh, and there are some obvious examples of that. Um, the whole uh, history of uh, women who uh, conceived children whom they should never have conceived because of uh, negligently performed sterilizations, for example. Uh, a woman looks upon that situation in a completely different way from the way that a man uh, looks upon it. That uh, that's an obvious example, but there are a woman looks at violence in a different way from the way that a, a man looks at it. A woman probably looks at consent to sexual activity in a different way, and so on and so forth. So, over the years, there have been quite a few cases where um, I probably looked at it in a different way from some of my colleagues, but I was often able to persuade my colleagues to look at it in the same way that I did. Well, that, and that's interesting, isn't it? I think obviously all women don't think the same, all men don't think no. the same, but maybe an no. aspect of wisdom is thinking about what you don't know, what you haven't got experience of and what you might need to imagine or ask about. And that may be an argument for yes. judicial diversity. So. I mean, aside from being a, a you know a woman and a, and state educated and all those other things, um, you also had a rather unconventional route to being a judge in that you your pre prior career principally was as an academic. Rather, I know you were a member of the bar, but not a bar maid, but a member of the bar. Um, but um, uh, I just wonder whether you think that academic and practicing lawyers think differently about the law, having quite a long experience of them both. Um, yes, probably, although I think at appellate level, there may not be that much difference, particularly when you get to House of Lords or Supreme Court mm. level, because at that stage, we are thinking about contested points of law of general public importance. Uh, and so academics think about contested points of law, 
and the judges are having to think about contested points of law. So I'm not sure that it's so different then. But um, do, you, do you remember that wonderful phrase that uh, Stephen Sedley used about advocates? Uh, that advocates uh, were brilliant at reasoning from a given conclusion. Yeah. Yes. Um, and obviously it makes sense when you think about it um, as an advocate. And after all, you've been an advocate for uh, most of your professional life. Time, um, yeah. Yes, a very long time. Uh, you work out what the result, the best results that you can get for your client. Uh, you reconcile your client to what is the best result the client can reasonably hope for. And then you work out how to persuade the court to that result. So you start from the conclusion. Um, and that, that's the point that Stephen Sedley was making anyway. Whereas, of course, as a judge, you shouldn't start from the conclusion. You should start at the beginning mm. with the evidence or with the facts as found by the trial judge, with the legal materials that help, with the legal principles that guide you, uh, and you reason to the conclusion, you don't reason from it. Of course, you do then have to check the conclusion that it's not absolutely absurd or ridiculous or, or whatever, I think. I think there has to be a reality check at the end. Yeah. Uh, nor do I think that all judges actually do that. Uh, but uh, I've no doubt that that's what we should do. Uh, and to that extent, there may be a difference in the way that um, uh, people with an academic training and people with a, an advocate's training uh, approach the resolution of legal problems. I'm not talking about fact-finding, that's a different issue. No. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you at least a variant on the question you thought I was going to ask you before, <laughs> um, which is we do have on the Supreme Court effectively a reserved place for a Northern Irish judge and a Scottish judge, because those are different legal systems mm. in some respects. Um, do you think our higher judiciary would be stronger if there were more established routes uh, to appointment for people with more diverse legal and perhaps personal backgrounds? Well, um, I think that the route that we've got at the moment is capable of identifying outstanding judicial ability wherever it may be found. I think it is capable of doing that. Whether it actually does is another matter. Um, but it's a great deal better at it than our previous system of judicial appointments, which was the traditional tap on the shoulder. Uh, this is not to denigrate the people who benefited from the tap on the shoulder approach because they were mostly um, highly meritorious people. And uh, I have to confess that I benefited from the tap on the shoulder system mm -hmm. for uh, the first four of my judicial, my six judicial appointments. Uh, but uh, the problem with it is you have to know whose shoulders to tap and you tend to be guided by rules of thumb about whose shoulders and, and an oh boy, uh, oh boy, and the occasional girl network uh, in knowing that. Yeah. Whereas if you've got an open and transparent appointment system where people have to apply, they have to uh, measure themselves against criteria, they have to prove, demonstrate that they uh, meet those criteria, but then you are likely to be able to attract from a wider pool. And this is happening. This is undoubtedly happening since we went over to that sort of system. Yeah. You've still got the assumptions about 
who is going to be best at which sort of judging job. Uh, and those traditional assumptions are quite hard to counteract, largely because they're unspoken. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I remember you said somewhere, I can't remember where you wrote it, but I remember finding it moving because it resonated with something I've seen happen to people in the legal profession and in the judiciary sometimes, I think. But also actually to an extent is one of the things that worries me about um, elite universities. If they broaden their access, which we all really want them to do, it's not just about access, it's about broadening the voices that are heard. And what, mm, what you mm. mentioned mm. was the story of the Little Mermaid, that you mm. can want to be so desperately accepted that you will cut off your feet and mute your voice and just try to be one of the boys, yes. I suppose. And you said mm. you were determined not to be, but I have seen people who I think there's always another route to promotion or acceptance. And after all, you know, you yeah. need acceptance in that small establishment. And I just wanted to ask you about um, getting underrepresented voices heard in the establishment, not just getting underrepresented people into the establishment, but getting those perspectives heard. What do you think we can do about that? Because it seems- Well, I think we have to acknowledge that it's a good thing to do. Mm. You know, that um, it's not only a diversity of um, gender, ethnicity, uh, background, um, uh, professional background, um, and the diversity of professional background will bring with it uh, a much greater diversity of socioeconomic origins, because obviously once we get where we are, we're all middle class by definition. Yeah. So, <laughs> you, but it will bring with it. But diversity of thinking patterns is also pretty important. Um, diversity of ways of looking at uh, how you confront a legal problem. Um, that is something that was acknowledged by uh, that great judge, Benjamin Cardozo, uh, in the 1920s. It's another thing that I'm frequently quoting. At a time when all the judges uh, were uh, uh, white men uh, in the United States, uh, he was, he was saying, out of the attrition of diverse minds is built something stronger than the individual parts. And I believe that in a collective um, collegiate court, uh, it, it ought to be stronger for the diversity of views uh, uh, round the table when you're hammering out the, the answer. Um, and, and that is just as valid when we no longer <laughs> are all white men. Uh, as it was when they were all white men. So yes, we've got to be open to that and we've got to have uh, an appointments process which is open to that and open to recognizing that and not running its uh, appreciation of people's qualities on tram lines. Yeah, and I, I wonder how we, I mean, we, we get people to, I guess, to question their own concepts of merit. I. I know um, I, I saw and it made me laugh um, in the first hundred years project you were talking about having been at Cambridge when there were only three women's colleges and the women all feeling very lucky to be in Cambridge and some mm. of the men just feeling very entitled to be at Cambridge and you mm. said that those are the sorts of people you wanted to punch in the face and obviously <laughs> you didn't punch them in the face and I just no, wondered I you had a more productive way of, of, of yes. getting them to take you and your worthiness seriously mm. but I just wonder how people deal with or face down uh, people with a sense of entitlement which perhaps blinds them to one's own merit which is a pretty dispiriting thing to happen 
Uh, it is. And unfortunately, of course, the people I were talking about were just fellow students. Mm. So, you know, you could you could beat them. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, uh, and it, it's important so to do. Um, I feel sure that it's not as strong a phenomenon now for your mm. students as it was uh, when I was at Cambridge, which is, after all, a very long time ago. Mm. Um, but there will be people who went to certain schools or came from certain sorts of backgrounds who will take it for granted that, it, that if they work hard enough uh, and are bright enough, they will uh, get a place at uh, a leading university. Whereas there are people who uh, are, work just as hard and are just as bright, who certainly do not take it for granted that they will get a place at a leading university, quite the reverse, in fact. One of your problems, as I understand it, Helen, is persuading those young people to think of coming to Oxford or Cambridge and to think of Oxford or Cambridge as a place where they might like to be. Um, because so many seem to be put off by their schools or their fellow um, students uh, from, from thinking that it is a place that they might like to be. Um, I don't know if that's a phenomenon that you encounter. Well, we, we, I mean, well, at Mansfield, we broadly reflect the educational yeah. backgrounds of people in, in uh, people with our home students, but obviously it is an issue to make sure that people don't feel, well, mm. I would be uncomfortable or I would be with people who would put me down. Why would I bother? And I was going to ask that because I think you certainly were perceived by, if you don't mind my saying so, by um, women at the bar as a uh, you know, you were not a ladder puller upper. You were somebody who supported other women at the bar. And I do remember um, a long time ago, and I was quite a junior lawyer speaking at an international judicial seminar where I was very nervous and was much junior to everyone else. And I remember noticing you nodding, and then in the ladies' loo afterwards, washing your hands and saying, "Oh, that's very interesting." And, and I said, "Well, it's nice of you to nod." And you know, everyone needs someone who nods. And I thought, "Ah, oh, you knew, you knew that that was quite an intimidating environment to be in." Mm. And I just mm. wonder what judges in general, and this is men and women, but what judges in general can do to, yes, yes. in the way so, that they ask questions or the way that they interrogate an argument, which obviously has to be rigorous, but which makes people feel listened to and worth listening to. Yes, yes. well, of course, one's got to try and do that, of course. Um, and uh, if I have been able to do it, and I'm sure I have been beastly to people as well without meaning I don't mean to be beastly but I'm sure some of the things that I have said to council will be perceived as being um, beastly or certainly not as kind as they had hoped that I would be but I think if I have been able to um, try and get council to give her their best because that's what you want you know you don't want to intimidate them you want them to do a good job because that's the that's the job that's going to help you as a judge yeah. um, at least that's the way I look at it yeah. But I think my background of 18 years uh, trying to get the best out of uh, bright young students might just have contributed towards that in a way. Yeah. Can I move on to a slightly tangential but maybe related question? Um, one of the things that I know you were interested in in your judicial career, and I'm thinking of cases like um, the E case and I think the House of Lords, um, is getting people's voices and perspectives taken into account in litigation who might not have been. So for people who um, are not lawyers, is E.H. in Tanzania, I can't remember the exact title, but it was a case about um, whether the best interests of a child were taken into account in litigation. Mm. Mm. Um, 
and I ZH terms in it. Yeah, Z ZH. Sorry, yes. Um, mm. uh, my my um, acronyms are going. Um, but um, I, I also remember um, in the at the JFS case where which was started when a child was about nine or ten, and by the time mm. it got to the uh, Supreme Court, the child was about twelve, and you asked where was the witness statement from the child and we had to scurry around and get one because mm. everyone had run and run this case through the parents who were running the case on the child's behalf and you said I'm interested in what the child now the child thinks now he's 12 and it was a salutary lesson really and I just um what do you think's happened do you think that's a general shift in the way that courts have um operated that they think they ought to think about whose perspectives are relevant rather than just I hope so come before I, I mean especially children um I mean, one of the cases that really shocked me very early on in the House of Lords was the case that we had about whether parents and as their surrogates, teachers, should be free to impose corporal punishment on children in yeah. um, uh, independent faith schools. Yes. Um, and so it was all argued on the basis of the uh, religious freedom of the parents. There was no intervention from any child's rights organization. There was no perception that this was actually a case that was as much about the rights of the child and children involved as it was about the parents. Uh, and so I said so. And uh, I think um, these days it would be definitely looked on much more as a children's rights issue as well as a parental uh, freedom issue. Yeah. So I, I think we have moved on quite a bit and if I have done anything to contribute to that moving on well then I shall feel very pleased uh, yeah. about that. Mm. Oh, I think you should. Uh, I mean one of the one of the other things that happened over the course of my career as a barrister was a real opening up of who could appear in front of courts you know there was really mm. real anxiety about standing for a pressure group to bring a case at all or yeah. I recall a case early in my career when the Child Poverty Action Group brought a case that affected hundreds of thousands of people but mm. no one of them could have got legal aid because it was only worth about eight pounds a week it was about a winter fuel yes. allowance and the big yes. exciting issue was that Child Poverty Action Group was allowed to argue the case um, which no excuse me my phone is ringing will you just let me yes. um yes. tell them to go away yes of course yes hello i'm sorry i'm on a zoom call i can't talk to you now bye there we go there we i'm afraid i can't do anything about that because that's where the phone is yes it doesn't matter um and uh the yes yeah, so 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 much broader approach to who can bring a case that's important mm. to the court, much broader approach, as you said, to people who can intervene in cases, often three or four interveners in mm. cases in the Supreme Court, well, maybe not often, but occasionally three or four mm. interveners in a case in the Supreme Court. And obviously that does mean that the court can get evidence of um, the wider implications of a decision they're going to take. Um, but I just wonder if you think it may be dangerous for courts to try to do that sort of um, taking into account of wider interests, as it were, being a balancer of interests rather than the, the, the government, the executive doing that. I just wonder if that's part of the reason that courts get criticised. Well, it may be part of the reasons that courts get criticised, uh, but it, it depends on the type of issue that it is. But if it's a type of issue that involves the balancing of different interests, and there are a lot of cases that involve the balancing of different interests, um, individual interests against the 
whole community or different groups within uh, the community against one another. There are many of such cases, in which case it is useful to have a broader perspective than the one that the litigants bring to it, um, it particularly in public law cases. Private law cases are a bit different, but um, the litigants may be bringing their particular perspective, but actually if they succeed in persuading the court of their perspective, that may have knock-on effects for others, which are not so uh, good in the balance. So I sometimes we did get worried that the interveners were all wanting to pile in on the same side as the uh, person who is against the government or the public authority. Uh, and uh, that's one reason why we tried to um, exert a bit more discipline uh, amongst ourselves about how many interveners we allowed because we didn't want it to look like everybody ganging up uh, on, on the government or the public authority. Uh, but we were still alive to the varying perspectives on the same problem that different groups can bring. So you have to try and, uh, try and see what, what can they add that's not yes. going to be there if they're not there. And sometimes, of course, the government intervenes uh, in cases that involve a public authority that isn't the government. You can sometimes have uh, the government intervening and they intervene uh, in order to promote government policy uh, against sometimes what the public authority wants to do. Uh, and so to give the example of the Yemshaw case, which was all about the meaning of violence, most of the arguments in favour of a broader definition of violence actually came from the government department which intervened in the case because that was their policy and they wanted to persuade the court that it was also the law. So uh, the government is sometimes on the side of the angels, let us not forget that. Yeah. But I mean, it, it, I think there are quite a lot of law students on this um, call. I just wonder what you think is, is useful, because I've always been conscious if I've been doing an intervention that saying me too doesn't really help in court. In fact, it's quite annoying. So you have to try and think of a different perspective, but without trying to argue the case you might have argued if you were running it. It's mm. quite a delicate balance. And I just wonder if, mm. if you have any thoughts that might help people well, on what is a useful intervention. Well, it is uh, something that you used to do uh, quite a lot. Um, it is useful to have the, the broad um, human rights or international law context, uh, even if it's not going to add anything hugely uh, decisive to the argument. Nevertheless, it does enable one to put the, um, the argument in its broader context. And I think that that is, that is useful. Uh, not sure that all my colleagues thought it was useful, but um, I thought it was useful. Um, I think some of the most useful ones are from sort of associations of people with the particular problem who can then bring uh, more evidence about how the problem affects those people than the evidence in the individual case. Um, I was thinking about um, some of the disability cases, uh, they can be benefited by having evidence uh, of how uh, this particular problem um, impacts upon 
uh, disabled people generally, or a particular type of disabled person who isn't the same type of disabled person as the one we've got before the court, yes. that sort of thing. Yes, and um, I, I think of a case, um, the student loans case, Tajiri, where uh, Just for Kids yes. Law intervened, and I thought I did I wasn't the intervener in that case, but added really useful context mm. to the case. Yes, that's right. That's, that's, a, that's a good example of context, mm. um, rather than a differential impact, but it was a, definitely a good example of context. Yeah. 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 Um, can I just move on to the, the, the controversy that is ongoing at the moment about the role of the Supreme Court? Um, I just wonder if you think the, the, the role of the Supreme Court did change in comparison with the, the, the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords? No, of course it didn't. Perception. Yeah. <laughs> of course it didn't change. The jurisdiction was the same. The only difference in the jurisdiction was that devolution uh, issues came from the Judicial Committee of the Privy uh, Council to the Supreme Court, which is obviously where they, they ought to be. It's the Supreme Court for the whole United Kingdom. And so deciding um, whether the devolved institutions have acted within their powers is obviously a role for that, that court. But that's the only change in the jurisdiction. Um, the types of cases that we chose to do were exactly the same as the cases that we did in the House of Lords. And the way that we did them was the same uh, as in the House of Lords. There were a lot of external things that changed, like filming and broadcasting our processes, much greater accessibility to the building, a much more user-friendly building, um, and uh, uh, greater outreach attempts. And, and we were able to uh, make our judgments more um, accessible and, and useful, I think. Um, mm than they had been when they were governed by the rules in the, uh, the procedure of the House of Lords. But those are, I'm not gonna say frills, but they're, they're uh, mechanics. Um, the substance of what we did was exactly the same. And I don't think that um, we took any different view of what our role was when we were in the Supreme Court from how we were in the House of Lords. And there's actually no evidence that we did. Yeah. But I mean, there is a perception and it's not a perception I share, but there is a perception and it's very broadly expressed in certain sections of the press, at least, and actually in certain sections of academic life, that by moving across Parliament Square or perhaps because of the devolution settlements and the Human Rights Act, or perhaps because of your perception of yourselves, but for some reason, the judges have become more activist um, and are uh, yeah, more activist and are taking on uh, making social policy judgments in a way that some people criticize as undemocratic. And I just wonder where you, oh. why you think that perceptions are risen, well, whether you think there's anything in it. There are that you have said so many things there, uh, mm. each of which would require mm. a whole seminar to mm. start talking about. Mm. Um, the, undoubtedly, both devolution and the Human Rights Act required a different role of, well, devolution of the Supreme Court. Uh, though actually, of course, most devolution cases come up through the um, ordinary courts in, in uh, Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland. So uh, a different role of the courts because of the uh, different constitutional settlement. The Human Rights Act uh, required a different role of all courts, not not just the Supreme Court, of all courts, it required a different role. Everybody who had to decide whether there had been a breach of the convention rights 
had to do it in accordance with the uh, uh, the Human Rights Act. Mm -hmm. So just, those things have changed the role of the courts in relation to, um, in one case, the devolved institutions, in the other case, the uh, public authorities uh, generally. Uh, but that's nothing to do with the creation of the Supreme Court. It was the same role. The biggest cases in relation to the Human Rights Act were all decided by the House of Lords. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, the, 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 uh, so I, mean, I do find this whole argument very puzzling uh, because um, I find it difficult to see what the demonstrable proof of um, greater uh, judicial activism uh, in these er in, uh, in areas which the court can't avoid deciding um, uh, is. But there we go. Yeah. But there was, I mean, there were a series of cases where this um, was expressed in some sections of the press, but clearly the big ones, the, the, the big blow up of this sort of uh, language was the um, description of the judiciary, the divisional court actually as enemies of the people in the first Miller case. And then some of the criticism of um, the uh, role the judges took in the second Miller case, the prorogation um, case. And um, someone, um, Joel Basoga has just and thank you for the talk, so it's very insightful, but asked about your perspective on whether there are some things that are too political that courts shouldn't decide um, if they have big policy consequences. Um, and he talked about the Scalia approach um, in the, in the um, American Supreme Court about judges being perceived to hijack questions that should really be determined by the electorate. Oh, Helen, you keep on asking me about three questions. Sorry, one. I know. I'm, I'm um, and <laughs> I therefore have to try and... and uh, Disaggregate be... them, sorry. Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. Um, there is a difference between a political question and a policy question. A political question is one which uh, only politicians should decide. Uh, and there are plenty of those plenty of those. Um, and generally speaking, in public law, until the Human Rights Act, and to some extent, EU law, there was a big distinction between the question of legality, I don't mean in the technical sense, lawfulness, and the question of policy, and uh, the, the uh, courts dealing with judicial review cases were very alive to uh, the fact that their role was not to adjudicate on questions of policy. But once you have the, to some extent, EU law, um, because questions of proportionality come into EU law, and also under the Human Rights Act, there the court is judging whether what a public authority has done is compatible with the convention rights. And the convention rights, some of them, draw a, uh, try and achieve a balance, a fair balance between the interests of the individual and the interests of the community or certain interests of the community. And that can uh, involve one in looking at what would previously have been regarded as policy questions. But that's to give policy a very broad definition um, and uh, not confuse it with things that only politicians should decide. Uh, 
one of the things that comes into that is that although in a human rights challenge, the courts are not bound to accept the balance drawn by the um, political decision makers, they're not bound to accept it. Nevertheless, we do take very seriously uh, the greater competence and institutionally and personally that they may have in order to uh, draw that balance. Um, I mean, if you think of the case about the Iranian uh, dissident and the parliamentarians, politicians, loads of them, who wanted her to come to this country so that they could have a, a, a discussion uh, with her in the Palace of Westminster. And the Home Secretary said, no, um, I've taken the advice of the uh, Foreign Office or the Foreign Secretary, and the Foreign Secretary thinks it will do too much damage to our um, fragile but essential, I think was the words, uh, relations with Iran if we let this woman come to this country, so no. Now, um, one could have deep reservations about that, uh, that balance as to whether it really was a good enough reason to, to interfere with the freedom of expression rights of both the parliamentarians and the Iranian dissident. Uh, but the majority of us uh, were prepared to accept that the government was better able to judge that than we were. And there are plenty of examples like that. Um, so who's the best judge of this particular issue is one thing. Whether we have got the jurisdiction to do it is another thing. So do you think it is just a question of the, the way that uh, Parliament has chosen to legislate by having a European Communities Act and a Human Rights Act that put those questions of proportionality within the judicial domain that has pulled judges into policy? Or do you think, as some judgments, over to comments in some judgments have suggested, that actually there isn't so very much difference between a context-related rationality review and <laughs> a, a proportionality review that is respectful of, um, as you say, the, yeah. the greater institutional competence sometimes of the executive. I mean, suppose, because it could happen, we are withdrawing from the EU, a, a government could uh, repeal the Human Rights Act. Were that to happen, do you think judges would have much less um, engagement with policy issues, or do you think they would arise through different routes because of the intellectual habits that have arisen? Oh, well, there you are. Um, mm. If the Human Rights Act were to be repealed, mm. the questions that would come before the courts would inevitably be completely different. Mm. I'm completely different. They were before the Human Rights Act. You will remember the days uh, when um, advocates might introduce human rights arguments into their cases, uh, but uh, they were almost regarded as a last resort. Uh, and they very rarely did any good uh, because the judges had to decide the question in accordance with the, the law they had in front of them. Uh, and there was a great tendency to reassure themselves that the law was completely compatible with the convention in any event, because most a lot of people thought that it was until Strasbourg told them that it wasn't. Um, obviously, the Human Rights Act completely changed the way in which certain issues uh, were looked at, because it made it unlawful for a public authority to act in a way which was incompatible with the convention rights. 
if that law is repealed, well, then that completely changes the nature of the debate. But if the real question uh, in reality is, uh, if the Human Rights Act were repealed, what, if anything, would they put in its place? And how would that differ from the Human Rights Act? That's the more interesting question. Um, yeah. And of course, we don't know, because it's not happened yet. Yeah. They've been talking about it for a long time, but it hasn't yet happened. So, so I'm talking about the perception, at least in some quarters, that judges um, are activist or engaged in more engaged than they should be in policy questions. And I think you said you didn't you didn't think judges were any more activist than they'd ever been. Um, no. Although, as quote Stephen Sedley again, a judge is judge who's not active is asleep, so that's worse. But um, <laughs> if you you there is that criticism. There was the famous enemies of the people headline and similar yeah. ones in other newspapers. Lots of people get unfairly criticised in the media. Do you think mm. it matters if you get those criticisms of judges? Or do you think judges well, can just see it off? I don't think it's necessarily for the judges to see it off. Well, yes. Yeah. Um, the judges have to be true to their judicial oaths and carry on regardless. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very important for them to continue to do their job, uh, whatever. Uh, the media are throwing at them um, and I think to their credit that they do. That's not the same as being insensitive to um, sensible criticism, of course, um, reasoned criticism, that's a very different thing. Um, one must always try and, and uh, seek to improve uh, one's, one's performance. Uh, but one of the big worries that there was in some very responsible quarters uh, when the Supreme Court was being set up was that the role of the Lord Chancellor as a very senior legal figure uh, and a senior member of cabinet was to defend the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary in cabinet. Yeah. And I know that uh, Lord Mackay of Clashburn was very aware uh, of the importance of that role and worried that it would uh, be jeopardized if the Lord Chancellor were no longer a senior and highly respected legal figure. And that is why, of course, the Constitutional Reform Act places specific statutory duties on the Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice uh, to defend the judiciary and the, well, the independence of the judiciary and the rule of law. Mm. And the regrettable thing about the enemies of the people incident was that the Lord Chancellor of the day did not instantly fulfill that task. And it wouldn't have been difficult. It would not have been difficult. Um, it's a, it's a relatively easy script. I mean, she, she said at the time, um, I suppose in her own defense, um, well, this was a freedom of speech issue. What, what would you have said if you had been her? Um, oh, oh I, I think it's quite easy. Um, I would have said, we have a free press in this country. Uh, you are free to write uh, and print what you like within the limits of the law. Um, you have not transgressed against the law, but it is my job as the member of the government whose 
sworn to uphold the independence of the judiciary and the rule of law to tell you that you are wrong. These judges are not enemies of the people. These judges were doing their job, deciding a case uh, in accordance with the law uh, and in accordance with their judicial oaths. And if they've got it wrong, the Supreme Court will put them right. Really easy, not difficult at all. And if, if that culture has been lost in, and... Uh, I'm not sure that it has been lost because I think that um, episode actually um, has led in su on subsequent occasions, uh, Lord Chancellors, including that particular Lord Chancellor, to be uh, much more supportive of the judiciary when they have reached conclusions which um, not all the newspapers share. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I, I, I was going to ask because I think you said serving judges it may not be their role to defend themselves if, if mm. there are unfair attacks on mm. them. Mm. Um, do you think it's the role of retired judges, the judicial press office? Um, I mean, do you think there's a sort of a general role for people who are interested in the rule of law to make that point or? Well, I, I think that uh, people other than judges, and by that I mean uh, not only members of the legal profession, but I do think the leaders of the legal profession have an extremely important role in, in this. And generally they are very good at, at doing that. Um, but the risk is that they will be seen as self-serving. Uh, and mm -hmm. so it's important for other people who understand the, the importance of the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary to stand up for the judiciary. It's difficult for the judges to do it. You, know? um, you can't, I don't think you can respectably go along and say, um, this is what I decided and um, I've given my judgment and I'm going to expand upon that to convince you that I was right. I don't think people should do that. The judgment is the judgment um, and you shouldn't really try and expand upon it, nor should a press office do anything other than correct errors yeah. uh, and clarify. Um, but one of the things that I think has been very beneficial is the greater accessibility of Supreme Court judgments because, and, and hearings, people could watch the hearing in the enemies of the people case mm -hmm. and they could see that we were not discussing whether or not the result of the referendum should be respected, whether or not we should leave the European Union. That was not what the debate was about at all, as you very well know. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and people could see that. Uh, and uh, a wide audience uh, was able to realize that there was a, a serious constitutional issue that was being yeah. debated. Um, and that was true in the second one as well. So I think that was good. Uh, and also the way in which we do our judgments with a simple two page summary. Yes, I was going to say, I mean, that is a uh, that, that is, I think, a useful judicial role. And in fact, I did do an event with um, Lord Thomas, who was one of the enemies of the people in mm. a, a discussion of the book of that title by jo Joshua Rosenberg. And he, mm. Joshua puts a, a question mark on the end, which the Daily Mail didn't. But he, but he said, in retrospect, if they had put out a clearer press release about what they were and were not doing mm. and I, I suppose some of the things that were in the 
Supreme Court's judgment about what the judgment was not about, it might have mm. helped. Mm. But um, I suppose well, it, 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 it might, but um, <laughs> you never not. <laughs> it might not. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Um, I just have one other sort of institutional question because attacks on the judges are not a uniquely British phenomenon. In fact, mm. they're quite a worrying and global phenomenon. I'm thinking Poland and Hungary and various other places. Do you think there is ever a role for judges in one country to defend judges in another as judges? Or do you think that's just inappropriately political? Well, I believe that there are various um, networks of judges, different sorts, uh, who do seek to uh, put out statements um, in defence of the independence of the judiciary or the rule of law or whatever in appropriate cases. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a difficult judgment because it's not necessarily going to do any good. So and it, sometimes it can do some harm. Um, but to show solidarity with judicial colleagues under threat, under unjustified threat, um, is, is something that I think associations can do. It's better if the association does it or the network <coughs> than if an individual does it. Yeah. Um, I've got quite a lot of questions, and if people do put questions into the Q&A function, um, I will try and filter them. I may not get to them all, given that there are large, very large numbers <laughs> of people here, yes, yeah. um, but I will try to um, at least summarise the, 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 the scope of um, all of them. Um, there's one here which is quite important in terms of what we were discussing about the voices of people in courts. Um, mm -hmm. Hayley Nelson asking about legal aid having yeah. been withdrawn for so many very vulnerable members of society and in such sectors and, and asking, well, I, I, suppose I would ask, do you think that matters or do you think judges can fill the gap? And Haley asks, what do you think could be done to solve it or do you think it will be changed in the future? Oh, uh, obviously there is a serious gap um, because uh, the withdrawal of all kinds of uh, public funding for all kinds of legal services in certain subject areas clearly creates huge problems, not only in court, and in fact, not so much in court as earlier on in the case. You know, if somebody is having trouble paying their rent or paying their council tax um, or is in difficulty um, agreeing arrangements for their children, what they need is some legal help at an early stage in the problem. And often uh, a lawyer uh, or somebody who's with legal um, training uh, can solve the problem without it ever having to get as far as eviction or uh, a, a battle about children in court or whatever. Uh, and so that seems to me to be the worst thing about it. And if ways can be found of restoring the early help and advice that people need that would reduce the problem of representation in court because fewer cases would have to come to court there would still be a problem of representation in court uh, but it wouldn't be as acute as it currently is my feeling from the review uh, that the um, ministry of justice published must be last year, early last year, was that they had got that message. But unfortunately, once public funding has been relinquished 
for a particular area of activity, it's extremely difficult to get it back. And I think uh, subsequent secretaries of state for justice have realized that uh, a variety of the cuts in the uh, justice sector uh, were not a good thing. And in fact, have caused more problems than they have solved uh, and have been struggling to uh, get things back uh, ever since. And it's really, really difficult. Uh, and uh, in fact, my sympathies lie entirely uh, with, with them uh, in their efforts to try and uh, retrieve something uh, from uh, what happened, um, I mean, particularly in, in the under LASPO uh, in 2012. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just end as we are an educational institution with a couple of questions um, uh, about educational things. So one was asking if you could elaborate a bit more about the link you mentioned between educational access and en enhancing diverse perspectives in the judiciary. Um, and what do you think we as a university should be doing to try to send people out in a way that does enable them to have the, I suppose, the, the empathy and the imagination that we were talking about that perhaps the diverse well. judiciary creates? Well, yes, um, I feel sure that uh, part of the wonderful thing about being in a university, at least in normal times, is the exposure it gives you to a wide variety of people who are not exactly like oneself. <laughs> Despite what I said about being irritated by the, uh, the young gentlemen with their innate sense of entitlement in Cambridge. There were plenty of other young gentlemen who did not have that sense of entitlement. And in fact, who deeply resented the sense of entitlement that some of the others had. Uh, and uh, one met, the great thing about university is the opportunity it gives you to meet a wide variety of people and to, one hopes, debate with them all sorts of, of issues of burning interest. I think that's how you get it. And the more diverse your uh, fellow students are, the more you're going to get from that, as long as you do all have the opportunity of getting together. And I hope that's still going to be possible in these difficult times. I, can, I fear that this may be uh, one of the casualties of current lockdown situations, that it's harder to meet a wide variety of, of your fellow students and get out and about and learn from them yes well it is unfortunate i'm cheering on our colleagues in the vaccine research department across the road um yeah. but at least we do have zoom and it has been absolutely wonderful um brenda to hear those perspectives there are a lot of questions some of which i think you would say you weren't possibly going to answer in a public forum because <laughs> they're much too political others i would have liked yes. to have asked you but i do think we ought to stick to um, a Zoom hour, um, but I do hope that we will be able to invite you back um, as part of our community in real life um, before too long and hear some more of your perspectives. Um, I'd just like to um, remind people that um, next Friday, because we have one of these talks every Friday, next Friday uh, we have uh, actually a Mansfield alum, Rashid uh, Dastatar, who is a um, brand consultant but also a poet. And he's going to be writing, uh, talking about his book about creativity in the 21st century. But before that, on Tuesday, if you get in quickly, you may be able to get in to hear another um, Yorkshireman, or Yorkshireman, rather than our Yorkshire woman, um, uh, uh, Lord Haig, uh, is going to be talking about uh, the next 20 years for Western democracy on Tuesday in the Hans Lecture. 
Um, I've also been asked by the university itself to say that um, if you enjoyed uh, this uh, Baroness Hale talk, why not tune in next week on Wednesday at one o'clock for the Romani's lecture, which she is also giving. Um, so please go and um, have a look at that. Um, but we do, I can see we've got a lot of people on, on this call and our Mansfield Friday talks are a very important way for us to reach outside the university community to encourage everybody to meet and come in and to th think and in normal times we literally invite people in um, to college but um, at the moment we invite you onto Zoom and our YouTube channel um, but they are free and they are open to the public and they are emblematic to us of how we want to open up um, sharing issues and debate about the world um, and we are particularly interested at Mansfield in widening access to higher education it is in our um, DNA. So if you want to um, hear about these talks as they happen every term, please go to our website and sign up and please encourage your family and friends to as well, because it's one of the advantages of this, one of the silver linings of this Zoom um, thing. And if you're interested in attending um, in future, uh, the links I think are going up in the chat box now so that you can find the link to our webpage showing how you can um, join in or even contribute to us if you are an outsider and feel like it, but it's absolutely not compulsory. Um, but thank you all very much for um, coming in and joining and being part of our community um, and um, making us who we are today. And Brenda, thank you very much for that talk and also for being part of our community. We really value having you as one of us. So well, thank you. Thank you. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>